Welcome to Oto Mentor, the podcast that provides mentorship for your otolaryngology career. I'm your host, Christina Cabrera Muffley. All opinions expressed in this podcast are my own or my guests and do not express the views or opinions of my employer. This is episode 11 Choosing Fellowship in Otolaryngology, the Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery Edition. I'm joined today by Dr. Jeff Farrell, who is an assistant professor specializing in facial plastic and reconstructive surgery at the University of Colorado. Jeff graduated from the University of Mississippi Medical School before completing his residency in otolaryngology at the University of Colorado. He then pursued a fellowship in facial plastic and reconstructive surgery at the New York University School of Medicine. We are fortunate to recruit him back to Colorado for his practice. Jeff is married and recently had a baby daughter. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks a lot for having me. My pleasure. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Tell me about how you decided on otolaryngology as a specialty. When I was an undergrad student at Ole Miss, I actually started working in an otolaryngologist's office there in the Oxford. And he found out that I was pre-med and wanted to go to medical school. So he allowed me to kind of shadow him in his clinic and then in the OR. And that was the start of when I thought I wanted to do otolaryngology. And once I got into medical school, it was just kind of solidified. I always look back on that and find myself fortunate to know because, you know, the times where you don't feel like studying or you're getting sick of preparing for step one and things like that, knowing that you wanted to do a competitive subspecialty kind of helps to give you that extra motivation to to spend those extra hours. So it was good that I decided that early. Yeah, absolutely. So did you work in the office or did you? I did. Yeah. So I initially got a job there to try and bolster my med school application, you know, just being in and around a doctor's office. But one of the otolaryngologists there was a good guy that had gone to Ole Miss and he said, well, this would be more helpful if after you get done with your work, you can, you know, follow me around and stuff. And so it was a fortunate opportunity for me. Nice. Had you had exposure to medical offices before? Or? Well, when I was a high school student, we had to do a senior project and I did it on, I followed around orthopedic surgeon. That was kind of my first real exposure, but at that point, you know, I didn't know what to look for, know what I was looking at, so it just kind of planted the, the seed. Sure. And then we were fortunate enough to recruit you here yeah. for your residency after medical school. Mm-hmm. So then how did you decide in residency that you wanted to do facial plastic surgery? Yeah, so one of the things that initially drew me to otolaryngology was the, the wide variety of procedures that we can do. And then as I got into residency and I started doing some of the cases on my own, I started to kind of gravitate towards the facial plastic stuff. It's not to say that I didn't enjoy the other things. I just enjoy the facial plastic stuff more. And, you know, I was fortunate to have my mentors who I seemed to get along well with, had a similar personality, it seemed. And that was kind of the stepping stone that I needed to really make that decision. I I know that the guy that I had worked for in Oxford as an undergrad and some of the residents that were now in practice that I had worked with as a medical student had kind of floated the idea, well, come back, join a private practice, these kinds of things. In that scenario, it would be best for me to be a general oligologist. So that was kind of, that was really the only thing that was keeping me from wholeheartedly say, oh, I'm going to do facial plastics, no question. So maybe around my third year of residency, I went to a facial plastics conference 
you know, I was able to spend time with some of the other folks in the field throughout the country and just, just felt like I really belonged there. And uh, that was what kind of pushed me forward. Yeah, that makes sense. So how competitive was the application process for facial plastic and reconstructive surgery? Yeah, so... Which, uh, by the way, is the longest I know. specialty title in... Yeah. <laughs> That's why you just say FPRS. Right, yeah. Well, I think, you know, I was fortunate enough to... I'm saying fortunate a lot because I felt like, you know, residency really prepared me well for it. But, you know, it's nice to have two facial plastic surgeons that were you know, on the faculty when I was a resident who really guided me. Personally, I was able to get a fair amount of research. And when I was filling out my my application, I felt like it was pretty strong. I do feel like it's a competitive field. Certainly, there are, there are more fellowships now than there were when I was applying. But in my mind, the good fellowships are highly competitive. And so, you know, I kind of took that approach as as I was applying to make sure that my application was as competitive as possible. And what's the timeline for application? Yeah, I believe the application process opens February 1st. So typically, if you're applying for the first time as a resident, it's going to be February 1st of your fourth year. I think it's open until maybe March-ish, but you want to be one of the first to get it in. You know, it doesn't reflect well on you if you are you know, two weeks late or three weeks late, that kind of thing. Probably you were not going to get the interviews that you want. So February 1st is when you got to have everything ready to submit. And then interviews happen? Interviews happen over the ensuing two to three months. I think I started getting interviews maybe late February. And then my last interview was maybe sometime in May. So pretty quickly. Yeah, it happens pretty quick. I didn't take any vacation time my fourth year because uh, I knew that I wanted to devote all the, the days off that I had to interviews. So, you know, from that standpoint, I think you kind of have to sacrifice a little bit if, if that's what you want to do. And I wanted to go on as many interviews as I possibly could. The nice thing about facial plastics interview process is that when you accept an interview and you go there, it's not just let's sit down ask you questions, that kind of thing. You actually follow them around on whatever they're doing that day. So, you know, you get to see some of the biggest names in the field, do a facelift, do a rhinoplasty. I know there's a couple where I actually scrubbed in, you know, so that in and of itself is like a little mini fellowship. You know, you can just see, it kind of opens your eyes to, to show you that, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do things and there's not necessarily the one right way and everyone, you know, can get good results by getting there a different way. So I thought that was very exciting. It was exhausting and financially draining, but looking back, I wouldn't have changed anything. Yeah. So how did you differentiate between the fellowships? How did you decide which one you liked? Yeah. I mean, so for facial plastic and reconstructive surgery, I think more so than maybe any other subspecialty we have, there's such a wide variety of potential fellowships. So they range from doing microvascular, basically all big time head and neck reconstruction to following around a private cosmetic guy. Okay, so the first fork in the road was basically, do you want to do microvascular surgery versus do you not? I like microvascular surgery. I think it's a, I think it's a very cool skill set to have. I think it's very durable. I mean, it's, it's a huge marketing tool when you're looking for a job. I personally felt like the life-work balance would be a little bit skewed if I went into microvascular, you know, depending on the setting you go into, you're not going to have a lot of backup. So 
most of your patients you're going to be on call for at all times. That was not as appealing to me. So I, I interviewed a couple microvascular fellowships, but for the most part, I kind of ruled a few of them out. Then you come to another fork where you say, do you want to do mostly cosmetic or you want to do mostly functional or you want to have a mix? And so for me, I think the, the cosmetic stuff is tough to learn. I think it's in, in many ways more challenging type of surgery because you're taking something that is not necessarily broken and you're trying to fix it. Okay. So you have to have the, the, the bar is set very high as far as results go. So I do think that if you're ever going to do cosmetic surgery, you need to have plenty of training in that realm. But I never wanted to do just cosmetic. You know, I want to have a nice mix. So I wanted to, to go to a fellowship where I could learn both. And luckily, it worked out that way where I could. And so you went to New York. Mm-hmm. And so what do you think really helped you get in to that fellowship? Yeah, I mean, I'd so... You mentioned research before. Research, you, you got to... Basically, you ha- have to have enough research, especially within facial plastics, to just get your foot in the door. So a lot of these programs you know, they're going to want to see that you're active in the academy, this type of thing. And if you're trying to apply to their program with no publications, then there's a pretty low chance that you're going to be given talks once you get done. So just to get your foot in the door, you have to have plenty of research. After that, when you go there, it's more of a, can you interact with this person for an entire year? Like a personality meld. Oh, totally. And, you know, you spend so much time with these people that if there is a clash and personalities, not good or bad, just maybe not mesh well, it's going to be a long year for, on both sides. And so when I went there, I felt like personalities matched well, got a lot, you know, there's three main fellowship directors that I would follow, which I also liked, you know, you can see three different ways to do things and be wildly successful in a very competitive community such as Manhattan. So it's nice to, to get those different angles, but that was step one to get along with everyone. And then right before I was putting my rank list in, I had Dr. Winkler call my top three programs, speak to the fellowship director and say, hey, listen, Jeff is very interested. You know, I think it'd be a good fit, this type of thing, which I think goes a long way because if you have a faculty member kind of put their reputation on the line, not necessarily just by writing you a letter of recommendation, but actually speaking on the phone with some of their colleagues in the field, I think that goes a long way. And so Again, I was very fortunate to have someone who's willing to, to do that, whereas it's not the case everywhere. Right. And just, yeah, shout out. So Andy Winkler is one of our facial plastic and reconstructive surgeons here at Colorado. And that's who you're talking about. Yep. Calling for and, and, he, and it's a pretty small community. It is. They all know each other. And so, you know, good or bad, it could it could really lead to some interesting conversations at, at the meetings, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, was, I thought that that went a long way. Great. So what was your favorite part of fellowship? You know, I thought fellowship was very exciting. It was, from an hour standpoint, I would say not quite as bad as residency, but close. It was different stresses. There were times as a fellow where I felt like, look, I'm ready to do this, you know, and it's hard to have someone looking over your shoulder or, you know, you standing there watching someone for the hundredth time it wears you down. But looking back, you know, that just watching surgery sometimes can give you as much information and help mold your personal surgical philosophies more so than actually doing stuff. So, you know, for me, it's watching these guys that have flourished in New York City for sometimes over 20, 30 years and seeing what they've done right, uh, what kind of things that, that allowed them to become successful. 
and to hopefully take that away into a different setting. Obviously, Manhattan is a, is a, in and of itself is very unique, but I felt like it was exciting to to see what worked there and kind of take the good the good things back to Colorado. Yeah, the good old boy from Mississippi and you know, I know. Manhattan. Right? Never never would have thought. Was that right? a culture shock? Uh, yeah. I mean, I initially I submerged submerged myself in work so much that you know it was like any other. You know, I lived in a tiny apartment and worked fifteen hour days. But after I kind of got the hang of things and started to explore the city, it was awesome. You know, certainly would have been nice to have a little more money in the bank to take part in some of the things that Manhattan has to offer. But it's still an awesome city. The energy there is palpable and and uh i thought it was you know a cool year of life could i be there forever unless i have a hundred million dollars in the bank probably not yeah probably not what skills or procedures do you think improved the most while you were in fellowship compared to your residency experience that's a good question so as a resident i maybe did a dozen facelifts maybe less as a fellow i think i took part in somewhere around 50 to 60, which, you know, a facelift, it seems like there shouldn't be a lot of different ways to do it, but there are. And I think the more you see, definitely the more skilled you're going to be doing it. So that was a, a huge thing that I that I picked up on during fellowship and then rhinoplasty. I mean, as a resident, I did a lot of rhinoplasty more than, you know, most residents would do. I think we get an amazing rhinoplasty residency here. But I was involved with over 450 well, rhinoplasties as a, as a fellow in one year, in one year. So each day I would operate with a different fellowship director. And so I'm in their full OR day. And so every day of the week I'm getting, you know, three, four, five cases. So just to see the different ways that they do rhinoplasty and, you know, the different techniques that they use and then, you know, looking at their post-ops and stuff, I think my rhinoplasty knowledge just exponentially grew. And would I have been fine without having done that? In my rhinoplasty practice, probably, but it never hurts. You know, you can only get better the more you see and the more you do. Those two procedures were invaluable from a fellowship standpoint. Yeah. When did you start looking around for jobs? I may have been a little behind the ball. So when I interviewed at NYU, one of the one of the faculty members at NYU basically said, "So where are you going to work when you get done?" I'm like, "You know what?" He said, "Oh, you should already have a job lined up." That's a huge, you should already have Jeff Farrell, MD, facialplasticsurgery.com, bot on GoDaddy. You should have practice already squared away. And I'm like, oh no, you know, it's stressful. So I felt like I was behind, but the more I talked to my co-fellows during boards and things like that, I mean, a lot of people didn't necessarily have a, a solid plan. I probably, I mean, in addition to looking at the back of the white journal, I emailed a couple headhunters, and then I really started looking in earnest maybe halfway through my fellowship. I know it sounds a little bit late, but you don't get, for most of these fellowships, you don't get vacation time. So you can't, a lot of fellowship directors, if you needed to take off time to go interview and things like that, they would give you the time off, but you know you may be missing four cases, right? So I personally didn't want to be interviewing all over the country, trying to find a job while I'm missing out on valuable training. So I actually interviewed for two jobs. One was a a job in California that they had actually reached out to the FPRS administrative assistant 
and she sent an email to all the fellows. And so I responded with my, my CV and they gave an interview to, I don't know, three or four people. And I was one of them. So I just went over a weekend and then I had been in contact with Dr. Jenkins, the chairman here, and just said, Hey, listen, I really like Colorado. I'd love to come back if, if there's ever, you know, opportunity and, and just kind of so happened they got approved for the Boulder opening and one thing led to another. I interviewed for both jobs and it just felt better here. Yeah, because you took a job. So we opened a satellite clinic in Boulder, Colorado, and you took that job. And that job really wasn't fully facial plastic surgery. No. It still isn't, right? Tell me about it's, that. Well, so I took the job under the pretense that I would see whatever I needed to see to build that practice up, which I'm happy to do. I mean, I want to keep my general otolaryngology skills up. If nothing else, for call. You know, I want to know. I want to be able to be in the neck safely and, you know, do that kind of thing. So... For the first year or two, I was seeing mostly general. I would say the majority of my operative cases stemmed from facial plastic related conditions. But I ultimately was able to get the, the volume up enough to where we hired a, a second provider up there who is purely a generalist. And so he started seeing patients maybe a year ago, I think. Yeah, yeah he was just a last touch year. over a year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So maybe right out of a year. And that has allowed me to kind of shape my practice a little bit more facial plastics focused, which is kind of the plan. I mean, there are some guys that I don't know whether they're independently wealthy or they have some other source of income, but if you want to come out and just do facelifts and cosmetic rhinoplasty, it's going to be four or five years before you can even turn a profit. You know, it's going to be, it's going to be a long time because you have to build your reputation. You have to have word of mouth spread. You have to have you know, marketing takes time to get people in the door. So there's no one, unless you're taking over for a retiring single provider, I mean, it's just going to take time. So I thought this was a nice opportunity. And I thought Boulder was an affluent community that potentially could really be shaped to what I wanted it to be. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like a good plan. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about this marketing, because I feel like other branches of otolaryngology, you really don't have to go out and market yourself uh, yeah. as much. So can you talk about that and like social media, those kinds of things? Yeah. So, you know, I've seen the full gamut of what marketing can do. So there's a couple guys in New York that spend a lot of money every month, search engine optimization, taking out ads and various social media platforms, even print. I kind of felt like the best surgeons didn't necessarily have to do that. Okay. So there was uh, one of my fellowship directors was by far the busiest aging face surgeon, probably in New York city. And he was very secretive about website, getting a consultation. So it was almost one of these things where it was only word of mouth and it worked well for him. I had another fellowship director who was pretty active on social media, which I think got him, you know, plenty of business. But it seemed like the clients that he, the clients, I mean, any cosmetic surgery, it's always nice to refer to them as clients, you know, he got a different clientele based on his social media stuff than my other fellowship director who kind of kept things secretive. So maybe a mid twenties, fairly successful professional would come to the social media stuff. A billionaire would come to the word of mouth. Okay. So it's just kind of, you got to build somehow. And, and certainly you can't rely on word of mouth alone. But I think ultimately some of these guys who are just so overexposed on social media, at least within the community, the facial plastic community, I think maybe enough is enough. 
you know, maybe a little bit overexposed or a little bit too, I don't know, salesman-y. Mm -hmm. I, I never wanted to be that guy that, you know, is just a pure salesman. You know, I think I've always of the belief that your your work should should be your best marketing tool. And I feel like if you're having to spend too much time on social media, maybe you're spending a little too little time focusing on patients. I see. And I mean, when you talk to patients, when you do consultations, do you show before and after pictures? Like, is that part yeah. of your feel? So, I mean, it's always hard early on. Right. Right? You don't have the volume to, to have sufficient before and afters. But every patient who wants cosmetic surgery wants to look at before and after. So I do think that's a valuable tool. I personally don't feel like you should post them on the Internet, especially in Boulder, that community. It's Histo a small community. Historically has been, you know, against. They wanted to be more natural and people got cosmetic surgery, but they didn't want anyone to know. So it's it's not fair for me to ask them to be available for anyone to see because Boulder's a different community. So I personally don't want to put those before and afters. If I'm going to operate on a patient, then I'm happy to show them before and afters. Or if they're presenting to me for a consultation, I think it's that's completely reasonable. I don't... I just don't agree with, you know, posting pictures on the internet. In addition to the before and afters, which I think is reasonable to show patients that are in your office, a lot of patients ask me about, can you do a computer-generated before and after? Oh. Okay. This is a slippery slope, I feel. I had a fellowship director who did use it. The majority of my fellowship directors did not do it. Okay. So basically, it's programs that take their own photos, and you can alter them to make the nose look like they want it to look. Now... I personally don't use that because I feel like it almost creates unrealistic expectations. With those programs, you can make the nose look perfect, okay? In reality, patient's anatomy limits what you can realistically get as a result. You know, you can't make a big nose small. You can make a big nose medium. You can't make a small nose big. You can only go, you know, one step. So if you, you can shrink a nose on those programs and make it look like Angelina Jolie, but that's not realistic. And so I don't, I think using those sets you up for failure. Yeah, that makes sense. They probably signed you up more cases because they're like, oh, yeah, that's what I want to look like. Where do I sign? You're going to be in for a long post-op period. Yeah. Especially during swelling and all that kind of stuff. So it yeah. reminds me of hairdressers, right? You bring in like the red carpet look. And, this is what I want. Right. This is what I want. But then if your hair is curly and you want it like perfectly straight, that's right. not going to work. And if your face doesn't look like the actress's face, right. then that hair is not even going to look, even if they can get the hair to look like that. Yeah. So I just, you, you got to set expectations from a realistic standpoint early on yeah. is my, my feeling. Do you feel like most facial plastic and reconstructive surgeons go to private practice or academic practice? I think most go to private. Yeah. There any given year, someone told me that there's only like two or three academic openings for facial plastics. So the vast majority go to private practice. It doesn't surprise me because these guys, you know, a lot of them are going to want to do mostly cosmetic stuff. So it makes more sense to do it in private practice to build your, you know, your space the way you want it. Maybe more of a boutique type thing. I personally wanted to do a mix of cosmetic and reconstructive. And so, you know, this... I felt like academics was going to be the thing for me because I, you know, I still wanted to do trauma. I did a ton of trauma in fellowship. You know, I do cosmetic stuff during the day and then I'd add trauma cases on at night to do all that training and not use it would be, I just felt like it didn't make sense. And then, you know, to do the complicated cases that 
for private practice, you got to always think about the bottom dollar and may not want to do a complicated recon on a patient who has Medicaid or something like that. And I never wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be able to do what needs to be done regardless of kind of the pay structure. So academics was kind of an easy choice for me. Yeah. The hard part is probably financial. Oh, totally. Totally. And, you know, even still, you struggle with it. It's not the only thing I think about, but with a family, you have to put food on the table. You have to be able to provide. Sometimes you feel like you're just spinning your wheels. If you're in academics, you're just not quite. The ceiling's lower. But you're providing value in other ways. Yeah, and if you and if you're not if you're not doing that, why do we all get into it? Yeah, it's kind of kind yeah. of my thought. So, but I think this is a more of a philosophy and struggle for people in this specific fellowship. Totally. Specialty to think about because the other ones don't have that kind of dichotomy of, you know, the Beverly Hills facial plastic surgeon versus the academic totally. facial plastic surgeon. And and there is a stark contrast between the two. But I personally feel like if you call yourself a facial plastic and reconstructive surgeon, you need to be able to do the full gamut of FPRS. So, you know, the guys that only do facelifts all day, every day, yeah, their bank account is flourishing, but I don't know. I feel like you're missing out on some of the rewarding things that you can, you can achieve from this field. So if you had to do it again, would you do the same fellowship? I would. Yeah. Okay. And we kind of have already talked about this, but what's your favorite thing about FPRS as a subspecialty? I like the fact that I can go from fixing a mandible at midnight to starting a facelift at seven. You know, I feel like that's a unique skill set to have. I feel like it keeps you challenged every day and you can always get better so you have a young daughter uh-huh. she's going to come to you in 25 years and <laughs> say dad i want to be such and such in my career if she says i want to be an otolaryngologist what are you going to respond to that it's a tough question you know obviously i'll support her and whatever she decides but who knows where the, the landscape of medicine will be at that point it's been a challenging road you know, I feel like you give up a lot to get here. I honestly feel like it's tougher as a female. There are certain things that maybe you want to accomplish before you're 35 or 36 as a female, whereas it's easier to wait as a male. I didn't have children as a resident or a fellow. And now that I have a child, I can only imagine how hard it is to do when you're working those hours. But as a female, earlier on, it's going to be a little bit easier. So I would give her obviously the option, but I would tell her that it's going to be tough. And unless you really, really, really want to do it, you know, you may guess yourself multiple times throughout the process. Anything else you want to add? No, no, no. Thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate you being yeah. on. This is great. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank Thanks. you. If you like what you just heard or didn't, please go to my show notes page to let me know your thoughts. There you will find a link to a brief survey so I can improve the quality of this podcast. I would greatly appreciate your help. Thank you.